It's good to be here celebrating with you, but also thankful for uh, uh, why this day matters, that we believe freedom isn't free, and so we're thankful for the lives that, um, on our behalf, even allow us to celebrate this way. Um, thankful that we could be here. Yeah. Hey, congratulations, Jeff and Jill. We're excited for your daughter getting married. Woo! <laughs> And um, we are, we are um, just three weeks away. This week, next week, Peter wraps up kind of these last two ideas. And then he is, uh, he is finalizing his letter that we've been in for the past year. And so my hope is somewhere along this journey through the letter of 1 Peter, something touched your heart. And so I'd encourage you, go to the website um, and click to share your story. We'd love to hear what God has maybe been doing in your heart as we anchor ourselves in the text week in, week out. Maybe there's something as Peter has called us to live this new identity. What in Peter has been stirring in you? And you heard Amanda mention it a little bit. There's VBS happening here shortly. I think there's 70-plus-ish kids signed up so far. We're excited for what VBS can look like as we invest in our kids and our community. And so uh, if there's an opportunity for you to donate or serve in some way, this is one of the great ways we try and be invested. Triple Treat at Halloween and VBS as we launch into the summer. This is a great way for us to invest in our community and the kids around here. And, uh, and this summer, um, we are launching June 20th into this Together We Believe. Uh, Casey and I were at the zoo and Ulbrich Gardens yesterday. You guys have been there? So both free opportunities, just us continuing to explore all that Dane County has to offer. But I was standing by one of the exhibits, the polar bears, Oh, love those things. Can't get enough. How close you can get to rhinos, these polar bears, these grizzlies. But we were standing there, and one of the parents said to their five, six-year-old kids, uh, keep away from people. And, and I was struck by that. Um, and not to say there's not challenges with what we've been experiencing for the past year, but I was just thinking about that one incident and then extrapolating from there. What are you being formed by? A statement, keep away from people, begins to form in you an ideology about the way you view life. And uh, one of our values is we actually believe we're transformed by relationships and how critical this is. And so this summer, we're asking the question, what are we formed by? What, what are the things that form us? And so we're going to take a look at 12 core convictions that we anchor our lives in, that we are formed by, not just to think about and engage our mind, but actually to awaken our heart as well. So excited for what this summer is going to look like. But as we go into the text, Peter is wrapping up his letter. He's got one, two more ideas that he's going to have for us this week and next. And this week, I was struck by this stat, 40 million. 40 million. 40 million wrestle with some kind of anxiety disorder, adults over the age of 18. 40 million adults wrestle with some kind of anxiety disorder, about 18% of our adult population in this country. I imagine that has increased during COVID. We wrestle with this idea of anxiety and where do we turn to try and solve this issue? 
um, I was reading a New York Times uh, op-ed piece, an opinion piece, um, called The Empty Religions of Instagram. Where where do we go to solve this this need for... uh, uh, alleviation for anxiety in our life, and Leistein uh, begins to recount where some people go to try and solve this issue, uh, no longer going to the televangelists, but rather uh, to find their uh, significance and hope from an Instagram influencer. And so she says this, she says, there's the chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. Contrary to what what you might have seen on Instagram, our purpose is not to optimize our one wild and precious life. It's time to search for meaning beyond the electric church that keeps us addicted to our phones and alienated from our closest kin. She's making an observation on uh, this anxiety that riddles our life and where we go to try and find significance from one influencer on Instagram to the next. Peter, as he concludes his letter, uh, addresses this idea in our life that he's going to tie something strange for us today together. He's going to tie this idea of humility. How how do we actually solve this anxiety when it rises up in our life? He's going to tie it to this idea of humility, which struck me in an interesting way this week. So here's where Peter takes us as he's wrapping up his letter, his final encouragement this week, and then next he's going to talk about a real spiritual enemy. Open your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5. 6 to 11, we're going to be in 6 and 7 today, and here's what he says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How does he say we ought to figure out this anxiety that might come upon us. And, and, and not, not to diminish the real sense that maybe there's some overwhelming sense of anxiety we need professionals or some type of therapy. So I'm not going to necessarily speak to it in a physiological sense, but rather this spiritual sense. What does Peter say? What, what is the solution to our anxiety? It's a word that's not often elevated in our culture. It, it's, a, it's an idea that I don't necessarily see in diversity trainings or my kids' curriculum or promoted out there in our world. He elevates this idea of humility. That in order to deal with our problem of anxiety, we must deal with our problem of humility in a self-centered world. So pray with me as we dig into the text this morning and try and unpack with Peter what what this correlation between anxiety and humility looks like as we go forward. Pray with me. God, you are good. 
We want to continue to open up your word relentlessly to hear from you. Reveal yourself this morning as we press into to whatever anxiety might even be riddling our hearts and help us see this correlation to, to a profound characteristic of humility. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. And around here, man, if, you, if you're new or back with us, we hope that we, we don't want anything from you. Instead, we, we just want something for you. We, we just think we're beggars that have found some bread and we want to share it with everyone and we just want to consistently gather around the text. And so here's where Peter is going to begin. Let's begin with just defining pride and humility. Let's just begin by defining these two ideas. He says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud. What, what would be like the worst, the worst place you would find yourself? If you could imagine like the, the, the worst place to find yourself, what would that be? Is it at Bill's on like a crowded day? Is it like at Woodman's and you can't find what you're looking for? And there's just too many options of everything? What's the worst thing you could find yourself in? God opposes the proud. To, to be so antagonistic to the God of the universe that you stand opposed to him and he is opposed to you, the God who holds your life in his hand. What's the worst place you could find yourself? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What's the sweetest place you could imagine yourself being in? God opposes the proud. The sweetest place then would be God's grace showered on you. God gives grace to the humble. So, so what is pride and what is humility? So there was this guy, I think I've told you about him. His name's Wally Norling. Does that name sound familiar? Sweet Wally. I sat with Wally for, for two years before he died. I've told you about Wally before. So I love Wally, right? This guy uh, planted 30, 35 churches in Southern California. Chuck Swindoll, Larry Osborne were guys that looked up to this guy. And, and I remember just sitting, I mean, all we'd do, all we would do, we'd sit in his little living room and sweet Betty, his wife, would bring us date bars and orange juice and we'd just crack open Ephesians. If you guys remember, that was the series we went through when we first started here together. It's been almost two years together. We went through Ephesians. Wally and I would just walk through Ephesians and we'd sip orange juice, he'd be on his oxygen mask, and he would drop these little nuggets. I'd always have to have like a piece of paper ready because he would just say stuff. And I remember him talking about humility. David, what is humility? It's confidence properly placed. Well, what is the essence of humility? There's actually a deep sense of trust attached to someone you're giving your trust to. Confidence properly placed. That, that we are constantly giving our confidence to something Humility, then, is confidence properly placed. Because if not given to God, to whom is that confidence entrusted? If God doesn't sit on the throne of your heart, who else? What's the other option? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What would be the other place you might give your confidence to? Yourself. If not God sitting on the throne of your heart, who might be there? So, so what is the essence of pride then? It is this deep self-reliance in our ability to solve things and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and figure things out. 
He's going to tie humility to our anxiety. So what is pride? It's confidence improperly placed in ourselves. And there's a dude back in uh, Daniel 4 we get to read about named Nebuchadnezzar. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall not be driven from among men. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Every once in a while, that pride is brought back in a check. I remember I was applying to be an RA back in college. And, uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to hire me as an RA? I just feel like it was a perfect fit. And I remember applying, and I was humbled very quickly, where I was told, David, you are not the right fit. I came in fairly confident and cocky and was denied the position. Now, after a few conversations and being humbled, much like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, he turns around. Daniel 4 finishes this way. Oh, it'd be nice to have this. Every once in a while, an idea hits your head. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, it's in there somewhere, right? Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar's come around, verse 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works and right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So, so the question then is, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under his mighty hand. Peter's ending his letter and he he wants us to be filled with this confidence, not riddled with anxiety. And what is the characteristic he gives us? He tells us to be humble. So so what is pride? And I was sitting in this this week. How might we manifest this pride in our lives? What what would pride look like? Because we have a general broad sense of, of maybe trusting in our abilities, improperly placed confidence. What, what would that look like or feel like? I think there's an air of presumptuousness. You know, you walk in and you go to Red Robin and you order your cup of water and they did not put your lemon. And they didn't place it nicely on the glass. Don't they know who we are? A level of presumptuousness in how you characterize and conduct your life. There's this presumptuousness, I think, that is stemming from this idea of pride and this self-reliance and fault-finding. Man, I am quick to point out the faults of others. How would pride manifest itself? Don't you know all the areas of growth you have and a lack of gentleness, this harshness in the way you fault-find and condescend, and you're condescending towards others. I, I go, there's, there's pride being manifest. What would pride look like? It's that harsh, fault-finding attitude. And this superficial desperation for attention. We see it in the 
empty religions of Instagram. How many likes might I get in this desperation for attention? I think that's pride manifesting itself. Who's sitting on the throne of my heart in that moment? I am, and I would love the attention. But Peter gives us one more that didn't immediately strike me as an expression of pride, anxiousness about the future. How would pride manifest itself? Peter ties anxiousness about the future to an expression of pride. So, humility. We find this deep confidence put in the right places. Now he's going to tie humility and anxiousness. Here's where he goes. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. And, and if you remember your middle school grammar lesson, like, I hate it. English class. It's like the worst. You've heard me say, I don't love to read because I had just a bad experience in middle school grammar. And yet, it's when we come to things like this that we go, how vital is that middle school grammar lesson? And this is also why we choose the ESV. It's not a prayer. It's, it's a translation. But some translations choose not to do this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Some translations will make verse 6 an idea and will make verse 7 an idea. But the way this is translated, how does verse 7 relate to verse 6? You guys remember what a subordinate clause is? Does that sound familiar? Like, middle school grammar. Why did it, what, what relevance does middle school grammar have for anything? When we read this stuff, rather than just having two valuable ideas, Peter's now tying. The way we cast our anxieties on him is directly correlated for what a humble life looks like. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How does humility manifest itself? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But did you catch this? What he's not saying is that you never feel anxiety. Rather, when we have them, we cast them on God. Say, maybe, maybe you've heard this in church where you gather and it's like, oh, you just didn't have enough faith. You should have just prayed more. Then you wouldn't be as anxious. Instead, what he's saying is, when you experience anxiety, there's something we do with that. This is part of the normal experience when you experience anxieties. Humble yourself, therefore, and cast your anxieties on him. And, and so, what, what does, what, if that's what he's saying, what does humility actually look like? And so he says, humble yourselves, therefore, casting. Now, now how, do we, how do we usually cast? What, what, what would that look like? Sometimes, sometimes casting looks, looks like this. We cast, and, and, then we, and then we take back. We, we actually want to hang on to these things in our life, whatever those anxieties might be. We, we cast them on, and, and then we actually take them back. 
Or sometimes we cast our anxieties and then we're constantly just, just looking back to, to make sure, do you, do, do you really have them? God, do you really have these things? And constantly checking back, what does he actually say? He says what we should do is we should cast our anxieties on him. That there's this throwing that happens. There's this hurling and chucking of these anxieties. He says, cast your anxieties on him. So what does humility actually look like? Casting your anxieties on him, it's an expression of prayer with desperate dependence. That we pray for the help of the Spirit to cast our anxieties on him. And so what does humility look like in that temptation? I think it's honesty about our weaknesses. That when I'm anxious about being sick, there's an honesty about what that might feel like. When I'm anxious about my kids and, and some anxiety about what might happen, now, I remember, I remember riding with my grandma when we were in Montana in this Oldsmobile, and there were no seatbelts in the back of your cars, right? Does anybody remember not driving with seatbelts? Does anybody remember that? Or, or not, not wearing a bicycle helmet when you were riding your bike? Does that sound familiar for anybody? Now, now it's like, man, I'm like running down the street to put a helmet on my kid, and then I end up like tripping over the sidewalk and slicing up my knee trying to... Protect my kid, right? When I'm anxious about my kids, maybe the tentativity of, of what they might be experiencing. Um, maybe, maybe they've chosen to, to walk away from Jesus down the line, and there's this anxiety that becomes uh, palpable. When I'm anxious about my job, when I feel some tentativity, whether about my performance there, and, and I begin feeling this emotion when I'm anxious about getting old. What does humility actually look like? You guys know I'm almost 40, right? Oh, man, I woke up, the hammies are a little tight. What does humility actually look like? He says, casting your cares upon him. There is this desperate dependence to release these when I'm anxious about dying, we feel that dark door, that sting of death is maybe more relevant or more top of mind for us, whether in our lives or an aging parent. We pray for the help of His Spirit. And then I'm, when I'm anxious about unbelief, how do I fight unbelief when I, when I start to feel like this shame or guilt that I'm not doing enough or honoring Christ enough? Well, what do I do with this there's actually this air of humility. How do I fight that anxiousness of unbelief? There's actually a casting of my cares, this desperate, dependent prayer. In temptation or in failure or trial, what was humility? What would humility look like? There's an increased sense of calm. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In failure and trial, there's an increased sense of calm. Casting my cares to Him and in success. You know one of my pet peeves? When people say, 
Kobe, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not me. It's all God. But inside they're going, but it's really me. In success, what if there was just this joy? It is God through me. What would humility look like in success? There is this delight not rooted in our successes, but God through me. What does humility look like? It's actually in order to deal with the problem of anxiety, we pray with this desperate dependence. We actually cast our cares. We release, we throw our cares before God. And then he adds one more. Humble yourselves, therefore, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What is that? That's a a promise of God. Where is that found? Where do you find the promises of God? Humility looks like, one, we pray for the help of the Spirit, and two, we read the promises of God. There was this study that uh, I came across. 40,000 Americans surveyed of, of various walks of life and then some very deliberate who were connected to faith. In order to deal with our problem of anxiety, we must turn the pages of God's Word. So there was this survey done by, uh, by the Center for Biblical Engagement. And they surveyed a group of people, and there was this correlation. They weren't necessarily looking for it, but it emerged that after reading the Bible one day a week, maybe something like this, gathering collectively, hearing the word proclaimed, there was not much difference made in people's lives in terms of anxiety and different challenges in life in comparison to those that didn't read it. Two days a week. Two days a week reading the promises of God also made no difference in terms of their data that they found in comparison to those that chose to have it as irrelevant for their life. Three days a week. Three days a week, much like you ever been to a hospital, you watch someone's heartbeat pop up, like when EKGs, it like blips on the screen. Three days a week, they began to see a shift in the impact that had. But they said in four days a week, there was evidence that began to emerge of the impact of what it looked like to read the promises of God. At four days a week, there was a loneliness that dropped by 30% in people's lives. There was a 32% drop in the anger issues and the bitterness or hurt that people were feeling. Uh, bitterness in relationship dropped by 40%. Alcoholism dropped by 50, 57%. A feeling of spiritual stagnation dropped 60%. Viewing pornography dropped by 61%. And consistently pouring over the promises of God. And then there was a spike in two other categories would you guess that if someone actually is pouring over the text and the promises of God, they want to share about those promises. And they, also, and they also want to invite someone into that journey with them. Now, what I don't hope you hear is, oh man, so I better just suck it up and read the Bible four days a week to give my life back together. But rather, there is this evidence of four, what does humility look like? 
praying for his desperate dependence and reading the promises of God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This deep connection between anxiety and this character quality of humility. I I got three takeaways for us, but here's what I hope they're not. We're going to do three takeaways about, so what would genuine humility look like? Here's my hope of what you don't do. You make this like a three-step process for becoming more humble. You know, if I just read the Bible four days a week, then I'm going to be filled with this stuff. No, it's actually this growing character quality, not just today, tomorrow, next week, next month, but this quality that permeates our lives as we humble ourselves before an almighty, sovereign God. So here's the first one. Components of genuine humility, an accurate, glorious, awe-inspiring view of Jesus. That week in, week out, we just want to hear from Him and anchor our lives in Him. Who sits on the throne of our hearts? We want to continue to get this awe-inspiring view of Jesus and an accurate, grateful, joy-producing view of ourselves as children of God. Peter's been writing this letter. He says, live with this new identity. Don't, Don't see yourself as less than. Don't diminish the qualities and the gifts you have, but on the other end, don't overstate or overemphasize maybe what you bring to the table. Like Nebuchadnezzar, who built Babylon? (laughs) Don't overemphasize. Instead, it's this continued, accurate, grateful, joy-producing view of ourselves. Don't, Don't enter with this level of presumptuousness, but also reflect on where that anxiety is stemming from. And continue to cast your anxieties on him. And then an accurate, grieving, stirring view of the needs of others that motivates us to happily serve them with the hope they might experience what we enjoy in God. This humility actually has an impact to being salt and light. You are delighted to hear other people's stories who are looking, that are filled and wrought 40 million probably more over COVID, wrought with this severe anxiety. We then get to be a catalyst of God's grace, demonstrating that humility. So I stumbled upon this quote from an old Puritan writer. Uh, 1660. Someone told me this morning, that wasn't that long ago. This old Puritan writer said this, till we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. Who sits on the throne of our hearts? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. Now, does self-sufficiency work to some degree? Man, it almost feels like it's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's going to work to a certain degree, but there is going to come an end where that methodology of life reaches its limit. At the end of this life, 
Self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He is full already. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. The glass is first emptied before you pour in wine. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. Till we are poor in spirit, Christ never is precious. I don't know what you're holding on to today. I don't know what anxiety still might be overwhelming you and overcoming you. That we grip on with all our might. Peter's call today is this, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That we release these pebbles into his mighty hand. Pray with me. God, you're so good. You oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. May we continue to humble ourselves under your mighty hand as we go through this life, releasing our cares and anxieties to you, knowing you care for us and that you are at work, that we place our confidence properly into your hands. Help us see and experience you as your saints a little bit more fully. Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.